The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to this Friday edition of Scorebox. Of course, you've got Karen in the studio holding the fort, looking at all the markets. Jeff covering all the top stories out of Berlin and Germany. And I'm here in Westminster covering the UK political situation. These are your headlines. Boris Johnson bending to immense pressure, resigning as Prime Minister, but staying on as caretaker until a new Conservative leader is chosen, despite continuing calls for him to step down immediately. I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the brakes. Former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is shot while campaigning for upper house elections, with local media reporting that current leader Fumio Kishida will address the developing situation this hour. Major US indices rise ahead of today's key non-farm payrolls report, as the Fed's Christopher Wallace says officials were previously asking the wrong question around inflation. I'd say that the thing that we didn't do well in 2021 is we didn't pursue the right risk management strategy in 2021. We kind of bet the farm that inflation was transitory and would come down on its own. But we should have been asking, what if it doesn't come down? And energy laws around Europe are being redrawn. The French push through new legislation. And here at the Bundestag, German politicians greenlight new government intervention in the energy sector. And local reports suggest that the government may take more than a 30% stake in ailing gas utility, Uniper. Breaking news out of Japan today as former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has been rushed to hospital after being shot while campaigning for upper house elections in the city of Nara. Japan's chief cabinet secretary confirmed that Abe's condition is currently unknown. We are expecting the current leader, the current prime minister, to address the nation within about an hour's time. So we'll wait for those developments. Meantime, uh, also in the region and across in Asia, at this stage in Indonesia, at the G20 foreign ministers meeting, we've got the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, saying he is deeply concerned over the condition of the former Japanese prime minister, Abe. Blinken saying, our thoughts are with the family of Abe and people of Japan. Meantime, let's push on and uh, move on to the developments uh, across here in politics in the UK as Boris Johnson has resigned as UK Prime Minister following weeks of scandal and an unprecedented number of government resignations, bringing an end to his three years in office. Johnson will stay in the position until a new Conservative Party leader is elected. He told his new cabinet he would not pursue any radical new policies in that time. A snap poll conducted Thursday found that Defence Secretary Ben Wallace is the preferred successor among party members, with Foreign Secretary Liz Truss and former Chancellor Rishi Sunak also placing highly. But Johnson's decision to stay in the interim has caused controversy among critics who want him out as soon as possible, including the former Prime Minister John Major and opposition leader Keir Starmer, who says he will try to force a vote of no confidence in the government to get Johnson out. 
Let's get out to Steve. He has plenty more coverage for us. Steve, we saw Boris Johnson resigning yesterday, not officially mentioning the word in that speech that he gave outside Downing Street. But the question is whether he even survives in a caretaker role now. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Mike and I came down to Abingdon Green yesterday, having spent a long time down at Downing Street, just to gauge opinion from the, 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 the plethora of Conservative MPs milling around. Some of them obviously very pleased with the situation. Others uh, very worried that uh, Boris Johnson was still uh, the caretaker uh, leader of this country as well. It was an extraordinary speech, Karen. And of course, we've been building up to it all week as well. And uh, uh, the furore built up over the last two days when this extraordinary number of government ministers and I'll remind our viewers internationally that you have around about 120-ish uh, government ministers and various ministers up to uh, cabinet level in the UK government. Well, up to half of them had resigned. One had been sacked, of course, Michael Gove, the levelling up secretary as well. So quite extraordinary that Boris Johnson, even at that point, was trying to carry on until he was finally persuaded that the game was up and the lectern came out uh, as it did uh, with Mrs May in 2019. It came out exactly, or for him to get out on the lectern at 12.30 uh, yesterday afternoon as well. It was a speech lacking humility, actually. He was saying the herd uh, had been un... Uh, he'd been unable to persuade the herd in Westminster uh, that uh, he was the man uh, to carry on. Uh, with the, uh, the economic and um, social and political issues of the day uh, here in the United Kingdom as well. So the process next is going to be extraordinary and how it works, there is a lot of contention about. I can tell you, speaking to a lot of MPs yesterday, including one who says, we just want to get this done as quickly as possible. And while I was chatting to him, he had another MP messaging him saying, would you be one of my eight supporters so I can go into the first round of the ballot? And he said, sorry, Steve, I just want to take this message a second so I can tell him I haven't yet decided whether I'm backing you or someone else. That's how quick the process is going here in the UK. Can it go very quickly? Well, some MPs think that actually the 1922 committee can have the final two names within a week or so, which seems inconceivable, seeing as, uh, as you were going through yesterday with Rosanna, that it could be up to a dozen MPs who think they can put their hat in the ring here as well. I spoke to a couple of uh, MPs on camera yesterday as well, including the man who had the honour, or dubious honour, of being the 50th resignation um, from the government. It was the science minister, George Freeman, and if uh, you remember correctly yesterday, I was saying his letter was one of the most scathing that I read as well. So let's just listen in to see what he has to say about the current government mix. And again, pretty scathing about some of the members who are agreeing to serve under Boris Johnson in this caretaker capacity. Listening to George Freeman, who's the MP for Mid-Norfolk. We face some very, very serious international and domestic challenges, huge challenges. Uh, we need to restore public trust in Cabinet collective responsibility. We need a Prime Minister who can turn this febrile instability into stability fast next week. And I just... I don't see with a Chancellor who's already said he doesn't have any confidence in the Prime Minister, an Attorney-General who said she doesn't have any confidence and wants his job, Cabinet Minister's already actively campaigning for his job. I don't see how that works. I just think it'll be a force for instability. I, I'd like to think I'm wrong, but I don't see it. And I think we need a caretaker who can uh, bring some stability uh, next week for the summer while we then get on with trying to choose the next leader properly and test them all around the country. I'll just unpack three comments there from George Freeman as well. Febrile instability. What a, what a stunning indictment of the caretaker government that is from a man who was part of the British government just literally 24 hours earlier. And he, and he does point out the obvious, really. You've got Nadeem Zahawi, 
who said, not 24 hours, again, most amazing character at the centre of the last few days, Nadim Zahawi, who we know is potentially working on his own campaign himself, uh, wrote this scathing letter about Boris Johnson and is now serving under him as a caretaker. It's quite extraordinary. And then you've got Suela Braverman, who's already put out her campaign literature pretty much. If you look at her landing page on Twitter, it's uh, Braverman for PM. Uh, anyway, she's the Attorney General and working under the current Prime Minister while she gets her campaign going. Again, extraordinary situation. But... There are others who wanted Boris Johnson to go, uh, who want to see the process done properly. Uh, and we'll talk about a little bit why uh, they want it done properly and in an orderly, perhaps an elongated fashion as well. Uh, and that's from the likes of Tim Lawton as well. He doesn't want it to take ages and ages, but he wants the process to be proper. Now, Tim uh, Lawton is the MP for, quite near me actually, East Worthing and Shoreham. Let's listen to him. It's normal practice for the sitting Prime Minister to hand over to the successor when he or she is um, elected. I don't think it's tenable, given the circumstances, for that to take three months. Uh, and that would mean that Boris Johnson will be back at the dispatch box, will still be running the government uh, in September. So what I do want to see is an accelerated leadership process. We're going to be deciding who the shortlist of two are amongst MPs in a matter of days uh, next week. That then has to go to the Conservative Party membership in the country, which can take months under the current rules. That needs to be changed. So uh, that was the MP for the lovely part uh, of the Sussex coast that I live quite near as well. So, look, I mean, look, this is very interesting. Does the 1922 committee, which has got uh, an election process actually starting at the start of next week as well, does it try to get this process done really, really quickly? Uh, does it actually change its rules so it doesn't go out to the party membership? That, that latter point, by the way, which has been suggested to me, it seems almost inconceivable as well, because actually if there isn't democracy within the Conservative Party uh, and the members vote for it, then how are we going to have confidence in the new leader as well? But trying to go from what could be 10 to 12 names down to two by the end of next week. Uh, so those two can go forward to the broader membership and, and have a, a hustings period, a canvassing period as well. That is a mighty task, but it could happen very quickly. As I mentioned, the process at the moment means you put your name into the hat, you need eight backers to get into that hat as well. Uh, and then one person gets knocked out every round until there are, are two left. Or it's a process where actually uh, there is a, a, an anointed one perhaps, and then that is a, almost a de facto stamping from the party as well. But, but get it wrong. And this is the important point. I'll just go back in a bit of history for our viewers as well. Get it wrong and you end up with potentially a period where you have instability, leaders who do not command the support of their party. And I'll just say to our viewers, can you name all the leaders uh, over the last 20, 30 years of the Conservative Party? Well, everyone says, well, I, I know Margaret Thatcher, I know uh, um, uh, John Major, I know um, David Cameron, I know Boris Johnson, I know Theresa May. But then there's a big gap, isn't there? How many of our viewers can name the leaders of the Conservative Party from 1997 to 2005. And that's the point that the Conservative MPs here are worried about. You've got William Hague, who was a great parliamentarian, just couldn't carry the country. You've got uh, Ian Duncan Smith, uh, a man who divides opinion aggressively to this day. And then you had Michael Howard, who came in as the man who was the predecessor of David Cameron. So those three prove that if you get this wrong, you're gonna fail to win over the country, no matter what your current majority is. And that's the point, Karen.
Steve, I wanted to pick up on the messaging from one of the candidates about uh, being a time for renewal, really positioning around a sea change now in politics, because we heard that a lot yesterday, where there are now concerns that you just need to effectively revisit all of the, the party uh, logistics here, the infrastructure, and you were mentioning the whole process around election, electing a leader. But also, I think that the type of government, uh, the many are concerned about the lack of integrity, so they want to see a change. And one of the names that uh, has been put forward now is Tom Tuckenhat. He has uh, effectively launched his bid to replace Boris Johnson. Just talk to us about him. Uh, I believe he's from your part of town, so you, you may know his background a little bit more than a lot of our viewers. Yeah, so Tom Tugendhat, um, Tombridge, not Tombridge Wells, Tombridge, but they're very strict about that in, in Kent as well, which is uh, the neighbouring county to uh, East Sussex where I, I reside as well. He is a younger man. Um, he was born in 73, so that makes him 49, or give or take as well. Um, he is a one nation Tory. And that's very interesting because that means he comes from the left side of the Conservative Party, where, of course, the last leader, perhaps one could argue, well, one, one could argue what Boris Johnson's stripes were, but he ultimately became a Brexiteer, which is seen as the harder, writer side of the party as well. So One Nation Toryism is talking about more about kind of a more cohesive um, view of the United Kingdom, more cohesive view of conservatism as well, going back to Benjamin Disraeli, the great Tory leader uh, of the late 19th century as well. Uh, and uh, he's potentially looking at not only being a unifying force if he can, uh, but also, um, uh, but also potentially having a, a kind of a, a softer view uh, on the world than perhaps the, the harder Brexiteer uh, view of the party as well. A former army officer as well, I believe as well. So uh, and a lot younger as well. So might carry uh, forward um, the views of a lot of the younger MPs within the party, uh, the, the newer intake, so to speak, uh, rather than uh, some of those more familiar names that we've known for a long time, the likes of Jeremy Hunt, um, the likes of Rishi Sunak, of course, the uh, outgoing Chancellor of the Exchequer. We've got another potential outgoing Chancellor of the Exchequer going, but we'll see about that with Mr Zahawi, how, how long he lasts in the post he is, whether he is the um, man to carry on past the caretaker government or not as well. So very interesting, Tom Tugendhat, not uh, with cabinet level experience, and that might count against him. What also jumps out though, we look at the various candidates so far that could be in the running, they seem to have very strong portfolios or backgrounds in foreign affairs or defence. You've got a number of former soldiers as well on that side. And of course, it jumps out when we're, we're talking about a war in Ukraine and a very strong response from the UK here. One of the reasons why Boris Johnson arguably survived even longer in recent months. The other side is it feels like there's a fairly decent finance portfolio as we talk about the cost of living crisis that needs to be tackled in this country. Yeah, um, uh, on, on the foreign affairs front and the, perhaps the, 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 the um, international front, I mean, the names that come to mind, of course, Liz Truss will be canvassing opinion as we speak, Ben Wallace, the defence secretary as well. Um, very strong line, uh, as we mentioned yesterday on Vladimir Putin, very strong line on the support for Ukraine. Um, very keen on supporting the British armed forces as well. Are they MPs? cabinet ministers who have uh, broad support within the party that remains to be seen but Ben Wallace perhaps does actually if it goes to the final two he has a lot of support uh, amongst members in the country as well but again um, does he have strong economic credentials as well and does he have a strong base within the party in parliament as well that is perhaps questionable as well Liz Truss 
I don't know how this trust comes across to uh, a lot of uh, the MPs in the party as well. Very strong supporter of Boris Johnson at stages as well. As well, I, I'm not entirely convinced. Again, it's who am I to say? I'm just looking from the outside, but I'm not entirely sh- convinced that I, I would see. I would put at this stage Liz Truss in the final two. Steve, enough for her to hop on a plane there to come back for the contest. Thank you very much for the coverage. I'm going to push on and take a look at uh, the reaction on from markets. We saw some weakness in sterling as uh, this was all developing yesterday and then a little bit of a bounce back and enough to reclaim the, the 120 handle, although we've just dipped below it as I, I took a look at it. You can see we are hovering around that level, but it has been a steady decline over the course of this year. Various different factors, of course, as we talk about the strength of the US dollar. That has been a key catalyst here for some weakness in sterling. Also, very weak economic outlook for growth here in the UK. Warnings from plenty of quarters about the sort of contraction we could be facing here given the task of tackling inflation. And you can see that has meant uh, declines over the course of the year in June and then again into July with the dose of politics on top. So we seem to be stuck around the, the 120 handle over summer now at this point without any clear catalyst for a breakout. Uh, it was fascinating to hear the tone from a lot of foreign exchange traders yesterday worried about any fiscal spending initiatives that would be seen as somewhat negative for the inflationary outlook here and potentially a negative for sterling. So almost sounding a warning to any incoming leader about loosening the purse strings and what could be a dangerous inflationary environment. The other big trade, of course, has been equities. We've been closely watching this market. It felt as though we were very much uh, just trapped with the fortunes Oh, the rest of the global equities yesterday, we saw plenty of green on the boards across Europe. Uh, by comparison, for instance, we saw gains of about 1.9 plus percent on the benchmark stocks Europe 600. So we're not quite in that vein, but still stronger trade across the course of the day. Let me take you to gilts. Uh, the bond markets are closely watching the politics and we're 1.84 on the uh, short end. Uh, so we've uh, just drifted a, a little bit higher at this point and you can see 2.54 at the long end, in the middle, we have just uh, shown a patch of red as we've declined. 2.1 is uh, what we've got on that long end. But again, uh, talking about debt and any policy initiatives, bond markets will be watching closely the costings of that if we see some changes. And uh, warnings came out yesterday. It was interesting, uh, very similar timing as we talk about the future of the country. The OBR also looking at the future of the country and warning about growing debt levels and the challenge of keeping a lid on that escalating debt. Let me take you to the Asian markets. Uh, that are battling through the Friday session. It is a stronger trade today for some of these markets. Cosby is up 1%. We had a very strong trade yesterday as well. Modestly firmer across on Chinese stocks. Similar ranges really for Shanghai and Hong Kong, about two-tenths of a percent. Japan stocks stronger. We're closely watching the events around the former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. That is a huge story for Japan today. Uh, to the US markets, I want to take you there first up. And you can see uh, the reaction that we saw yesterday. Uh, we've had a fairly interesting week. Uh, the minutes digested, the tone from those minutes was that effectively the Fed is worried about entrenched inflation. It will do what is necessary to bring down those pricing pressures. A recession may be a consequence of that. And of course, the data now ever more important as we count down to the non-farm payrolls report. Expected to cool off a bit. We've heard a ton of announcements lately from big corporates, a lot of them in the technology space about hiring freezes, retrenchments, 
and uh, that's expected to spill across to the numbers today. But uh, any heat in the average wages, that could be a negative for markets. And you can see at this stage, the NASDAQ, very strong pop. Worth noting the rebuild we have seen in technology names over the course of this trading week. A FANG stocks in seeing some momentum, the big ARK innovation of uh, stocks too, also traveling higher. But across the board, you can see gains too for the Dow, 1.1%. Let's move on. Uh, coming up on the show, former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is rushed to hospital after being shot. We'll have the latest on this developing story after the break. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has been rushed to hospital after being shot while campaigning for upper house elections in the city of Nara. Japan's chief cabinet secretary confirmed that Abe's condition is unknown at this time. Current Prime Minister Fumio Kishida is expected to address the nation in the next half hour. Let's get out to our colleague Will in Singapore for more. Will, for those of us who've covered Japanese politics over time, this is a shocking development. Just talk us through the latest. It really is a shocking development. We're actually getting some suggestions coming from the Kyodo News Agency that XPM Abe did sustain a bullet wound on the right side of the neck, but you cannot confirm any of these reports because there's been conflicting reports that have been coming from a variety of these news agencies at this present time. But in terms of what we do know, as you suggested, Japan's Chief Cabinet Secretary Matsuno did confirm that the former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was shot at 11.30 Japan local time. Matsuno went on to say that his condition does remain unknown and added that an act of barbarity cannot be tolerated. Meanwhile, we have been getting the reports from the attending Nara City Fire Department at the scene that did suggest that the former PM was in a state of cardiopulmonary arrest as he was being airlifted to the hospital. But again, it has to be stressed that his condition at this stage cannot be confirmed. We're going to be awaiting, I suppose, for PM Kashida, who is set to speak in in the next few minutes or so. We also got reports from NHK and Kyodo suggesting the alleged attacker was arrested for attempted murder. NHK was reporting that police may have recovered the gun used in the shooting of the former Prime Minister. There's also been suggestions coming from NHK that that was a handmade weapon. There was previous suggestions that it was indeed a shotgun. The current PM Kushida, like we suggested, has halted his election campaign, returned to Tokyo. He is set to speak in the next few minutes and major political parties have also been reportedly announcing that they're going to be halting their campaigning ahead of Sunday's upper house election. We've also heard that the LDP has instructed all of its members, the ruling LDP, to stop their campaigning at the same time. Also, we've gotten a raft of reaction that has come through from a number of officials around the world. We heard from Secretary of State Antony Blinken suggesting that he has to say how deeply saddened and concerned he is by the news coming from Japan about the attempt. 
on the life of former Prime Minister Abe. We don't know his condition. We do know he's been shot and our thoughts and prayers are with him and his family and the people of Japan. We've also heard from the US Ambassador Ram Emanuel saying that Abe's son's been an outstanding leader of Japan, an unwavering ally of the United States, that the US government and the American people are praying for the well-being of Abe's son and his family. It has to be said, Shinzo Abe was Japan's longest serving prime minister. He held the position on two occasions, the last of which was between 2012 and 2020, when he was forced to step down due to ill health. And he's perhaps best known for his introduction of Abenomics, along with his influence on the current political landscape in Japan. Current PM Kishida is a known protege of Abe-san and current BOJ Governor Kuroda was handpicked to enact the policy settings at the core of his Abenomics philosophy following the reopening of trade after the lunchtime break. As you can see there, Japan's Nikkei 225 fell by almost 1%. It has recovered somewhat. The yen strengthened in the immediate aftermath of the news and has held relatively steady in the interim. So we are awaiting, Karen, that news coming via the way of the PM Kushida because there's just so much unconfirmed reports that are coming through from a variety of media sources and it's hard to ascertain the true nature of the situation but it is deeply concerning and it is deeply troubling for everyone in Japan right now. Well I just wanted to talk about the leadership of Abe. You mentioned uh, he was the longest serving Prime Minister and that was uh, quite extraordinary given the revolving door of politics in Japan for many years. He really stood out for his stability there but also unusual that he had two runs at being Prime Minister and of course illness, uh, an ongoing illness uh, just derailed some of his career ambitions along the way. But uh, for, for markets, I think that term Arbonomics was fascinating. We spent so many years talking about uh, this uh, a policy idea to try and get the economy out of deflation, uh, effectively uh, stir up animal spirits. And some think it was successful in achieving uh, those inflation expectations, but not really changing the narrative when it came to well, slow economic growth and also falling prices over the course of time. But this is certainly a man that has done his bit for the country when it comes to Japan's fortunes. That's exactly right. And in so much as people can perhaps sometimes attack that 3 hour strategy, it was very much necessary, especially when you consider, like you mentioned, those deflationary conditions in Japan that ultra easy monetary policy, the excessive fiscal stimulus, the infrastructure spending that was all intended to boost demand in Japan at a time where they were absolutely struggling to generate any kind of growth. And if, and if you look at the situation now, and perhaps the new era of capitalism that they're looking to usher in, it still does have the fingerprints of Shinzo Abe on it. BOJ Governor Kuroda handpicked by Shinzo Abe to really push through the monetary policy settings. And even now with PM Kushida, even if he does take a different tack, Karen, when it does come to the method of the economic support and the economic policies that he is looking to enact, you, you cannot deny the fact that Abenomics is probably still going to be here to stay in the core, the, the crux of what J Japan is trying to achieve in order to address what is uh, let's say 20, almost 30 years of incredibly low deflation, incredibly low growth and incredibly bad outcomes for the households that are struggling because there just isn't any kind of wage pressure to the upside. Now waiting for developing events on the ground in Tokyo, Will, and we're just uh, going to show our audience a live shot of what we are watching on the ground. Uh, the uh, scene is set effectively for the Japanese Prime Minister Kishida 
to address the country. Clearly a state of shock across the board as we've seen these developments in Nara. Also, a very interesting place. Uh, this is uh, part of history, actually, as we talk about Nara, where the incident has occurred today. This was uh, this is the capital of Japan's Nara prefecture, uh, central, uh, south-central Honshu. The city, uh, known for its temples, its artwork, uh, dates back to the 8th century when it was actually Japan's capital. So historical centres, we talk about Nara and uh, we watch the developments around Abe-san. So we are taking this uh, picture, as you can see, nothing quite happening on the ground just yet, but we are waiting for some developments around this story. I want to come back to you, Will, because it uh, has been interesting to hear just uh, where we got to with uh, hopes in Japan, uh, that uh, there were hopes around the upper house, polls for some sort of stronger control for the, the ruling government as well. Abe clearly seen as having political capital, given he was out campaigning when these developments happened. That's exactly right. And you can't underscore his influence when it does come to the LDP because you just have to look at the constitution of the members that are in power in the LDP and all of them have basically come underneath his wing. Taro Aso, even when he was selected as PM, was obviously given the nod by... Uh, Abe-san, and the same goes for Kishida that really was selected because he was Shinzo Abe's protege and he was the one that was seen as the person that was going to enact a lot of, or the continuation of a lot of these policies at the same time. There is no underscoring the influence that Shinzo Abe still does have on the LDP considering the amount of time he did serve as Prime Minister, but considering just the relationships that he did have with a lot of the ministers that do still have control within the, the ministerial apparatus as well, Karen to talk about Japan in the context that for many, many years we spoke about the economic fortunes, just how difficult it was to get the wheels, the momentum moving in this economy. But uh, it, it, lately, as we talk about global inflation, some of that has been imported into Japan. The Bank of England has been clearly, a uh, Bank of Japan, I should say, has been clearly concerned about uh, moving uh, on policy, moving on monetary policy like you've seen other central bank governors do because they're concerned about what that does to growth. And, of course, this does bring into the equation the role of fiscal policy, just how much the Japanese government can do if there are concerns around inflation moving without growth at this point. A very difficult time for a lot of economies. I think what's been interesting, while the electorate has been stressing around what they're seeing with rising energy prices, all that imported fuel and what it means for their cost of living, there have been further broader concerns around around uh, regional security and concerns around the war in Ukraine and the role of Russia. And you've seen that pivot from Japan towards the West, very strong uh, uh, support for what Western leaders are doing and pushing back against Russia. And of course, these conversations playing out in Indonesia, where we really heard those comments from Antony Blinken uh, commenting on the situation around Abe-san. So I think there's a lot of play here. And uh, for Abe to be so instrumental at uh, passing this baton on and Kishida trying to define his premiership it is a crucial time as we talk about Japanese politics, Will. It, it really is. And exactly what you mentioned when it does come to the issues that they're currently having with Russia now, because Kishida-san, all of the issues that are stemming from that Sakhalin 1 and Sakhalin 2 LNG pipeline were centred around the campaign trail where Kishida-san on Sunday suggested those price caps that you did rightly mention and then that led to the former Prime Minister and former President of Russia, Dmitry Medvedev, basically putting Japan on notice and suggesting that they're not going to be able to have access to oil and gas potentially and they're going to nationalise their gas assets and that, that's a significant or would have a significant impact on Japan on the energy front, on the geopolitical front and not to mention that you're dealing with 
the economic turmoil that you just mentioned. Yes, there is this inflationary pressure to the upside that Japan's currently facing. The Tankan data suggested that businesses at least think it's a lot higher than what the BOJ has suggested. But all that has meant is that wages haven't increased to in line with the inflationary pressure to the upside. Households are struggling. The, the government, indeed, the LDP has suggested that following on from the upper house elections, basically they're going to be increasing and carrying on the subsidies that they've provided to the wholesale gas providers in order to provide some relief in that respect. So the stimulus is going to keep coming thick and fast. And you have this situation where you're heavily stimulating the economy, but at the same time, a lot of the, the pressure that's coming on the economy that's inflationary is coming from elsewhere. So having to deal with that, and then you have these un unfortunate events where someone who's such a stalwart, someone who has such a grasp of the, the economic situation, having these unfortunate things happen is going to be incredibly difficult for the PM Kushida. Well, I was just looking at uh, some uh, survey data coming up to uh, the election over the weekend and a recent poll conducted by the state broadcaster NHK says 42% of those surveyed identified economic issues as their main policy interest, but 17% said foreign and security policy was their priority. And this is uh, the first time in a couple of decades that effectively foreign policy and security has made it onto the radar of an election. So it is telling you about just how dramatic the uh, fortunes are changing when it comes to uh, how viewers, are, how voters are viewing the situa situation around the war in Ukraine. And now they are concerned. And if you think about politically, internationally, uh, Americans want this uh, stronger role from Japan too, when it comes to uh, regional security. It's not just Russia, it's China in the region too. So there's a lot behind the scenes as we talk about stability in Japan. I think the situation, the developing events around Shinzo Abe being such a strong leader and being so influential in the party still, it uh, goes to the heart of being able to convince voters about this uh, change in defence policy. I've got Rosanna around the set with me uh, to uh, join the conversation as well. And there's so many hallmarks here that remind me too of Germany, the recent response around having to step up defence, but of course the long shadow of World War II, still a legacy here. And it feels as though you've got two nations trying to step away from that legacy. But uh, clearly today when it comes to Japan, very challenging events on the ground as we talk about a man that was so well regarded in politics that has been influential in the day-to-day -day events and gearing the country towards fighting a cost of living crisis, but also now trying to change direction for the country when it comes to security. That's absolutely right, Karen. And you and I, you know, we've both worked in Asia and we know how absolutely shocking this is to see an event like this happen out of Japan, normally quite a conservative society, of course, gun violence, not actually very widespread in Japan. And, uh, and we just heard Will there breaking down just how Abe was as a prime minister from a, you know, economic standpoint. Obviously, he introduced Reduced Arbonomics. Um, you know, it's all about this sort of fiscal policy that allowed the resurgence of Japan. He was, I think it's fair to say, uh, and still is, a very, very popular Prime Minister and was obviously up until 2020. He had a number of health issues, ulcerative colitis, which caused him to stand down after his first year in power originally. Then he was uh, elected back into power in a landslide uh, victory and then actually had to step down. I remember this, I was reporting from Singapore in 2020 uh, and then his successor came in. So this was a, was a campaign speech he was giving for the upper houses of parliament. Obviously the reports as they started to come in around an hour and a half ago, people were being very careful about
about being sure about what we're seeing here. Because again, so absolutely surprising for Japan to see this kind of thing happening. There's some what we call user-generated content, uh, mobile phone taken videos out there at the moment, showing the moment of attack. Um, again, all of these being carefully verified. Uh, Japan being necessarily very cautious when it comes to all types of news reports like this. I believe we're just waiting to hear from Fumia Kishida shortly due to speak. We will get more information on that as well. But as you said there, it just absolutely uh, extraordinary, extraordinary scenes this morning. You've just taken me down memory lane to my time in Asia as well. And uh, I'm looking at the, the timing around when Arbonomics was announced. This was the, the second term in office for Abe in effectively 2012. And I remember at the time in you know, 2010, 2011, you saw effectively uh, Asia, the roads were paved with gold. Very mm. different to what we had playing out in Europe on the back of the, the economic crisis. Asia was booming and in that context Japan was a little bit left behind so Arbonomics was so instrumental in this catch-up to the rest of Asia what was happening in China what was happening in Southeast Asia Japan was very much not part of that story so it was such a dramatic policy trying to get Japan on the same page as the rest of Asia just uh, stunning to think about that timing mm. and of course it was a policy of innovation yeah. we'd uh, come off the back of uh, an economic crisis we saw everything thrown at the system rule books effectively ripped up on the monetary and fiscal side more importantly on the monetary side so having fiscal policy that was new and fresh that was targeted I think uh, the economic community financial markets were very much fascinated by this experiment uh, absolutely and it seemed to uh, hold a lot of sway but when you think Think about fiscal policy in Japan, of course, it's it's very complicated, as Will Kalouris just broke down for us there. When you take into account what the Bank of Japan has been doing over the years to try and sort out this deflationary situation that Japan struggles to get itself out of. And the pandemic hit Japan especially hard. I know it did for all of us around the world. But the tight restrictions that were in place and the ultimate fiscal uh, policy, the stimulus checks that were handed out, they really kept things under a very tight lid there. And then, of course, they had the Tokyo Olympics, uh, which was... A a very testing time for the country but was considered to be something of a success but uh, during that time between 2020 and now what you had was you had uh, Shinzo Abe stepping down you had Kushida stepping in you had this moment of turmoil in Japanese politics the successful Olympics and now what we've got going on here is a lot of focus on whether the uh, the J Japanese economy is in a kind of inflection point at the moment whether we're about to see something we just had this uh, article on our website by our colleague Elliot Smith on the digital yesterday which was great on this, you know, what the Bank of Japan is about to do to change this situation, and then this overnight. Very much uh, an interesting economic journey in Japan, but fascinating, I think, as we talk about good and bad inflation as well, because a lot of that imported energy cost has been very expensive for Japan, and for many years they wanted to see some form of inflation. They got inflation a little bit with the rest of the world economy, but it's not been a good inflation. It's not been the type of inflation that they were searching for all those years with Arbonomics. But just weigh in on this, Will, as we've been having a very wide conversation around the economics and also the career of Abe-san. Yeah, it's a really interesting situation that they have in Japan right now because obviously you've got all of these divergent kind of outcomes because you can basically separate it into three parts. You've got households, like you've been mentioning, that are struggling under the incredibly soaring energy prices. They're struggling with 
I suppose, the seedlings of inflationary upside, especially when you consider the fact that the likes of the, the restaurateurs that have been surveyed by the Nikkei are all suggesting they're going to begin increasing their prices. We saw the consumption data today that came off by 1.9% month on month. And interestingly there, people had stopped buying things at their grocery stores and instead chose to eat out. But those prices, like I just mentioned, might be increasing. So then you put that aside and you say the households are indeed struggling unless you're in especially the top echelon and this is probably a story that gets spread around the world but then you look at the two two aspects of their manufacturing and their non-manufacturing the manufacturers they are absolutely struggling right now you look at all of the data that comes through in the tankan all of the expectations moving forward as to their input cost inflation as to their just their general consensus thoughts as to how they see it all moving forward, and it is relatively dour, but it's the non-manufacturing side that has been holding up the Japanese economy and where you have seen the improvement as the the COVID-19 situation has improved, services, the expectation there that they were going to see some benefit. But then you bring it all back to Kuroda-san and what they're trying to achieve with this ultra easy monetary policy with being steadfast when it comes to that 25 basis point band. All of that was centered, keeping it incredibly tight in the face of all of this pressure that's coming from hedge funds was centered on encouraging capex and the one good thing that you took from all of the the recent survey data was the fact that businesses are intending to spend 18.4 percent more than they did last year in terms of capex that's why they have to keep those settings ultra easy and that's why even with all of the suggestions coming from certain parties that they should move on their rates that they should perhaps tighten a little bit more, it's probably not going to happen until they actually see that coming through because the worst thing that they could do right now is abandon aspects of that ultra easy monetary policy and it will come at the cost of growth because you've seen how that's happened when you're talking about, for example, the RBA. Governor Lowe was so adamant that they weren't going to go early on hiking the rates. They were going to keep it ultra easy for three years. But then when you flip it, on businesses, then when you flip it on consumers that have obviously taken on credit, businesses have been looking to expand rapidly, then it comes back to bite you. And that's why Kuroda-san has been so adamant at keeping that ultra easy policy. But obviously, if the inflationary picture changes, if someone else gets appointed because Kuroda-san's term is set to expire at the start of next year, it'll be interesting to see how or if any of those settings change. But as it stands, it's, it's an incredibly difficult situation for them because they don't want to sacrifice growth in order to tighten policy and perhaps have a little bit of different outcomes on that front. Well, uh, I'm just going to weigh in with some comments from uh, another international leader and, of course, a controversial one at this point as we talk about the foreign leader, uh, the foreign affairs leader of Russia. The foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, has commented, and don't forget he's been in Indonesia for these G20 conversations, I offered condolences to the Japanese foreign minister at the G20 meeting over the assassination attempt on Japan ex-Prime Minister Abe. So he's calling it an assassination attempt. Uh, This from Lavrov, who of course is having conversations about the role of Russia in the war in Ukraine. And uh, it has, as we mentioned, been such a big issue in Japan now in terms of defense and security as it's feeling pressure from all sides uh, with Russia on one side and, and, of course, when it comes to China and the aggression we've seen from the Chinese military in the region. So there has been a strong push to try and bolster defence in Japan, not the pacifist stance for many years and even under Abe-san. So a, a U-turn in politics effectively is what we're seeing on defence and security. So it is fascinating to hear Lavrov weigh in and offer condolences at this point to his counterpart, the Japanese foreign minister. 
Absolutely, and fascinating when you take into account, Karen, uh, Japan-Russia relations, which actually can be very, very tense surrounding the area known as the Kamchatka Peninsula around the eastern borders uh, of Russia. So it's not always smooth sailing when it comes to Russia and uh, Japan, especially as they butt heads neighbouring on that border. And as Will's already mentioned, the Sakhalin 1 project, which is a yeah, energy extraction project around those waters. So this is probably one of the items that would have been top of the agenda, either on the bylines or, or, or at or directly within these talks that are happening in Indonesia. So it is interesting to take into account that, that mention from, uh, from Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister. We also have this response from opposition leaders in Japan. Uh, Reuters, sorry, Dow Jones carrying this, saying that they normally stand against uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, former Prime Minister, politically, but they have been united in denouncing the shooting in Japan, saying, quote, this is a barbarous act that cannot be permitted. That's Kenta Izumi, head of the leading opposition Constitutional Democratic Party, also adding, quote, this shouldn't happen in a democracy like ours. Dow Jones saying Mr. Azumi and other opposition leaders said they were praying Mr. Abe will recover from his wounds, Karen. I just want to pick up on a couple more points around Abe-san. Uh, you know, when I was covering uh, Japan from Asia, uh, we, of course, were covering the developing events, events around the Fukushima nuclear disaster. That was a, a monumental day on CNBC with rolling coverage, I remember. And it was Abe-san who had to pick up on the wake of that uh, in 2012 and try and restore the country and of course manage the cleanup of that disaster. And now as we fast forward to 2022, nuclear is still a controversial issue, part of the energy mix in some countries. Of course, so we've been talking about it in France, but not in Germany as we talk about this side of the world. When it comes to Japan, there's talk about trying to restart plans that have had suspended operations after that disaster. So we're talking about a, a decade plus on where there are moves afoot trying to get some of those operations back into gear because we have this energy crisis playing out. So uh, there are a lot of events here where Abe-san has been pivotal in terms of intervening uh, in Japan's fortunes. Uh, absolutely, energy, the energy mix, energy reliance, all of those things. And of course, Japan itself never immune from actually some serious disasters. You're talking there about Fukushima. Of course, there have been devastating earthquakes as well. Plenty uh, to manage in this absolutely enormous economy, this engine of Asia, basically. Uh, and, and it's a challenging environment for any leader to be in, which is why it's uh, quite something to say that Abe was the longest serving prime minister when he was in power. So, you know, he was clearly very popular. He was re-elected, as I mentioned, in a landslide there, but his health issues did persist. Yeah, when you're in office for a long time, a lot of big events can crop up just mm. because of the nature of being in office for so long. It is quite uh, fascinating, isn't it, as we're talking about developments here in the UK. Yesterday, we had a man who had ambitions to be the longest-serving prime minister mm. in the UK, but ultimately uh, sent out of office by his colleagues, uh, and this uh, being Boris Johnson. But uh, today we're talking about a man who did serve his country and being the longest-serving prime minister uh, in the form of our base. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.